Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Today we welcome Julia Barry to talk about her recent research into health and wellbeing practices in community dance studios. We discuss the types of wellbeing issues young dancers and their studio teachers face together and how wellness windows might become part of the ballet schools of the future. Julia has such a wealth of knowledge and experience as a ballet teacher. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Prepoint Pod. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. It's my absolute pleasure. So I've invited you on today to. Well, we've actually been we've been talking for a couple of years now. I can remember it was it was one or two, maybe three years ago. We sat down and had a really lovely long cup of coffee. We did we just finished um, doing some really interested uh, in your research question. Um, and also what you would find. And it's so now three years later, you're at the other end of a Master of Philosophy. Is that correct? Correct, yes. With creative Industries at QUT? Yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your research question. Okay. So um, the research question came about mainly because through my 45 years of dance teaching, which sounds like a very long time, um, I gradually became aware of there being some really good dancer wellness programs happening around the world for professional companies and, and the elite pre-professional schools. And when I started looking into those, I couldn't find any research that had been done on private studio contexts and what sort of wellness things were happening in private studios. And uh, as a freelance teacher, I teach in a number of different places. And, uh, you know, often teachers would appear to be very interested in looking after their students, of course, uh, but finding it difficult to find information and courses to go to that they could access and afford. And I thought, hmm, I wonder who's researched all of this? And uh, turned out that nobody had. <laughs> there was research done on like individual components, like somebody had looked at conditioning programs or maybe at um, nutrition or something, but there wasn't like a, a, a any research about a holistic approach, sort of looking at all aspects of wellness. Uh, and particularly, I was particularly interested in the adolescent age group because that's an age group I've done a lot of work with over the years. So that's what sort of prompted me to get get started. So what I uh, ended up doing the research question was um, how can dancer wellness elements from elite pre-professional dance schools possibly be adapted for integration into private dance studio contexts. 
So that's sort of where I started from. And so I was looking at what's going on at the moment in both the elite pre-professional schools and in private studios. What are people doing and how are they doing it? Uh, Where there might be any gaps or challenges uh, that people were facing, uh, what sort of benefits people were finding from what they were doing, and then looking at perhaps, okay, so what can we perhaps do to assist private dance studios to enhance or develop a dance and wellness program in their school? So that's what I set out to do in my research project. It sounds like really valuable work and such an important gap in the research and I guess it is that uh, that leap from from the community studio level you know into I guess that you know a company affiliated schools that's that is it's quite daunting I think for students Um, but when we think about you know who who is feeding in who's feeding those elite schools it is the community dances it's the it, you know you have to learn to dance somewhere right so I think it's so important that there is transferability so I, I mean as soon as we sat down and started talking about it I immediately became interested because I, I also work across both of those um, settings and it's really interesting to see ways that that there can be overlap or that maybe sometimes there is an overlap and I guess there is no gold standard in terms of um, health and well-being, which I think we'll talk a little bit about later, for for dance students, I suppose. So, I mean, all of all of your questioning probably started a very long time ago. You, <laughs> um, would you like to tell the audience a little bit about your journey through the dance industry, um, from dancer then to teacher and now researcher? Tell us about the, the last forty-five years. <laughs> Okay, well, I I actually started learning dance when I was two and a half years old. My mum took me to dance class because I had very hyperextended legs and knock knees. And the doctor had suggested that we go to ballet. So off I went and and loved it from the beginning. So um, when I was 16, I went up to London to train at Arts Educational School. And then I went on to the Royal Ballet School. And I started on the dancers course there. But then after the first term, I realized that really my physique um, wasn't going to lend itself quite so easily to a dance career. And I had become very interested in teaching because I used to help my old teacher with classes and I really loved it. And I thought, you know what, I think the teaching is going to be more for me. Fortunately, on the course that I was on, we trained just as hard in the dance practice as we did in the teaching aspect of it and several of the people that I graduated with went on to quite illustrious performance careers so I was lucky that we you know we did our dance to a very high level as well as our own uh, our teacher training we did our own dancing to reach our own potential so um, in my third year at the Royal Ballet School teachers training course um, I met a Kiwi and um, fell in love with this chap And uh, we got married and uh, moved to the other side of the world when I was 19, which is a bit of a mad thing to do. My daughter says to me, Mum, you didn't do that. (laughs) But, you know, in the 70s, it wasn't that weird. You know, now it's weird as anything, but it wasn't that weird. So I was very lucky to fall on my feet and arrived in New Zealand. And I was able to work with a wonderful dance director called Russell Kerr, a very famous choreographer and director. And I worked with him in his, uh, he had an education company that would tour around schools doing educational performances and workshops. 
So I was very lucky to get some experience in a professional sense working for this dance education company. So sort of marrying the education side of it with, with the dancing, which was great. So I did that for a few years. And then my husband's job moved and we moved up to the North Island of New Zealand and I set up my own school, took, actually took over a school and started teaching um, more fully and um, had my own school there for you know, over 12 years and, uh, and then had a family and then uh, became a, t- uh, a freelance teacher and started doing more work with teacher, teacher trainees uh, working for the Royal Academy of Dance as a uh, supervisor of practical teaching supervisor. And at this point, I started to do more academic uh, work and I did a Master of Creative Industries, also at QUT uh, by Distance Ed, and became more interested in academia, uh, which was a big leap for someone who had been mainly on the practice at the coalface. So that was really, really interesting and definitely expanded my horizons and so on. And um, so we moved over to Australia about 10 years ago for my husband's job. And uh, I've loved living in Australia. Our children are here at university. I have brothers who live here. And I've uh, become a Royal Academy of Dance examiner since then, which has been also very interesting and able to embark on yet more more study. So, yeah, that's that's me, really. Yeah. That's a great story. and very, you know, very adventurous. I think even that that would have been a very adventurous journey to make, even in the seventies, to move to the other side of the world. You know, it's it's very daunting, but also not that uncommon for people who are pursuing a dance career. Often it's the other way around, though, isn't it? You know, for Australians yes. to move. <laughs> yes, to you Europe. could call it you could call it adventurous or downright silly. I'm not sure which it was, but it's turned out all right. We had our 45th wedding anniversary recently, so wasn't too bad a decision, I don't think. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. And so, you know, you've taught in so many different environments too and with different levels of of dancer as well so right down from beginner to pre-professional I'm guessing yes Um, I've taught my own school and for others people you know junior children but also a lot of work with the teenage group uh, a teenager age group and I've worked in pre-professional vocational courses and also for a university dance course and I actually devised some some teaching modules for them Uh, so yeah I've worked quite broadly across the age ranges although I have to say nowadays I work mainly with with older students um I have worked with with little ones as well right through to the the pre-professional level which is mainly where I'm working now and so along that journey you must have had some experiences that helped you shape this research question obviously observing different schools and observing you know, the pathways of maybe many of your students as well. But I guess if you were to reflect on some of those experiences, what are some of those that helped you to shape your research question? Well, I think there were sort of two sides to it, really. One was the side of um, the teachers uh, who I came into contact with, um, you know, going to courses and so on. I do a lot of my own CPD, you know, continuing professional development, going to different courses and you chat to people and so on. And, and uh, interesting to note that people are very hungry for information. They want to know, they want to find out more. They want to do the best by their, by their students. 
And then on the other side, from the students themselves, who, um, you know, there's still some quite, uh, what would I call old fashioned practices that I noticed were happening. Like, you know, you walk into a studio to teach a class and the girls are sat on the floor in the splits or something, you know, and it's kind of like, okay, well, that wasn't something that we have been doing for quite a long time. So I thought there's probably a lack of knowledge for teachers as well for some people. Um, and a lot of that which came out in the research is not because people don't want to or that they haven't got the, the knowledge, it's just they haven't had the access to it. So that's a, a little bit of a barrier, I think, that was perhaps holding some people back. And um, so that was what really sparked my interest and, and also noticing the, the challenges that students face trying to you know, balance going to dancing in the evenings when they've been at school all day, um, balancing eating well, you know, eating a, a healthy diet when they're dashing from school and straight to dancing, things like that. Um, noticing also from what worked well in the classroom in terms of teaching approaches. And I've always tried to have a really positive and encouraging teaching approach. Well, I hope that's what people have found. And just how that reaction from the students is so much different than if there's a, a rather more severe approach, which was quite common in, in you know, form, former years. Um, and really noticing the difference that that encouragement and positivity made to the students. So I think from the two sides, from the, from the teaching perspective, that um, I saw a need for teachers to be supported uh, in finding out more, where do I go to find this information? And, and also from the student's perspective to make sure that the information gets filtered down to them too, so that they can do a, their own self-care as well as uh, the uh, information that's shared with them by their teachers. Absolutely. And I think one thing that I've noticed maybe in the past 10 years since I finished dancing is that the advent of things like YouTube and Instagram, you know, they're all even the advent of podcasts. It's something that we never had. I mean, obviously I could watch a YouTube video, but there might only be one or two versions of a variation I was learning. Whereas now there are 17 million or something, maybe not that many, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe 300, you know, and yes. varying quality. Um, and it's sort of, it's interesting, I think, yeah, the way that technology is changing the dance space, but also, yeah, your observations, like there are some, some practices that obviously ballet, there's so much tradition involved and you don't want to lose that, but I guess it's hard to know what to leave behind. Yes, I think that because I've, I've been, this is my, it has taken me a long time to do this masters and because I've only been doing it part-time because I'm working full-time um, and I've noticed a big difference in that time about the availability of information and the what has now become really mainstream which wasn't when I first started it wasn't mainstream but it has become mainstream as, as time has gone on and you're right there's so much information now and sometimes it is filtering through what is actually valid um, and what is important and what is perhaps not so valid. But it's also quite a big groundswell more recently, I think, in the um, approach to working with dancers in that uh, this idea that there needs to be a certain amount of severity involved in order to get the best out of people. And I think um, there's more understanding now that each person is an individual 
And that's how people need to be approached when you're working with them. What works for that individual? Do they need to have a little bit of, you know, some challenge and that they will rise towards? Or do they need to have a little bit of um, inspirational, motivational um, input? Uh, or do they need to just be really encouraged and supported? And everybody's different. So that sort of uh, across the board approach, I think people are much more now in tune with getting to know their students well enough to know, you know, what works for that person, what works for that person, and be uh, rather more uh, aware of differentiation and inclusivity as well, so that it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all uh, type of approach. And when you were interviewing um, participants in your research, did that theme come out a lot? Because a lot of what you did was inter interviewing as your yes. method of research. So yes. What sort of things did your participants sort of say around that? So in terms of teaching style and I guess, where do we find information about that kind of aspect of, of helping students with their well-being? Yes, well, it was something, of course, when you're, when you're doing this kind of research project, because I, I did a survey of, uh, first of all, I interviewed some elite pre-professional schools. And that was very interesting. And people were very supportive of this research and very keen to be involved. It was great. And I'm currently just preparing a report to send to everybody about you know, what the findings were. And um, then I did a survey of private dance studio teachers, which was kind of you know, blanket out through Dance and the Royal Academy of Dance and other organizations. And so you, you know, the people that responded to that then there was a sort of a names out of a hat situation to draw out some people to interview. So you're actually sort of speaking with people who are already interested in the topic, really. So there's a little bit of a limitation in that you're not talking to people who are not interested in the topic. You're talking to people who care about dance and wellness and therefore tend to be very uh, focused on providing a positive and productive and encouraging atmosphere in their class delivery and promoting uh, social engagement within their schools and so on. So it's a little bit of, you know, preaching just to the converted sort of thing and that you're getting the feedback from the people who are already interested in that, in that side of things. And people were actually very generous with sharing their experiences of things that they had trialed that they found that worked and things that they found that didn't work. Some of them had got quite close connections with health professionals, such as people like yourself, physiotherapists and psychologists and dietitians and educational specialists, and people had developed quite close working relationships with people. And then there were others who would like to do that, but couldn't for financial reasons, accessibility reasons, uh, availability of those people. And uh, the research sort of started pre-COVID and then continued through COVID. That's why, again, it got slowed down because people were too busy trying to keep their heads above water uh, to respond to my, my request for an interview. Um, but people were very generous with their time and uh, things did change. As more and more things became available online, people were saying, well, it's been great. I've been able to go to more teachers courses because they've been online. And I'm so glad to have got all that information. Or we had... Um, a health professional give us a, an online lecture, which we wouldn't have been able to have because we're way out in the country and there is no one with dance knowledge 
near where we live. Um, and for us to go to take a group of students to a workshop costs so much money, but now we can access people with, with the online options. So uh, there was definitely a change in uh, people's ability to access information, at which I noticed through the advent of more online options during COVID. I think that's been the case in uh, across a lot of professions, but in terms of accessibility, I think you're you're absolutely right. That's something I did observe, and it's I mean that's very positive. And the affordability of, of of that information too becomes a bit less when there's when you don't have to travel to a, a professional development course. I mean there are some things that you that you miss obviously when everything's yes. online, but um, yeah, with some really um helpful outcomes i think as well as as well as challenges yes i think a lot of people are thinking that this sort of hybrid arrangement of some things face to face some things online or the same event is available as a face to face or an online uh, option i think that's going to come more and more to the fore as time goes on that uh, having those two options is going to become more and more normal um for people and, and also it's it's like I've been to a couple of conferences lately where the material that's been delivered is recorded so if you've paid to go to the conference you, you know you can actually access that material for a few months afterwards to be able to review and go back over things and and anything that you missed that you might not have been able to be there live um you can look at the recording which is which is also helpful yeah so you did you did mention that Probably the people who were participating in your research already did have uh, a vested interest in dance and well-being. Do you think that they also, or was some light shed on ways to engage people who may not be interested in research? Yes, I think it's all about opening up the conversation and and also about um, trying to just encourage people's interest without being critical of what they're already doing you know um everybody's different everybody's circumstances in their professional teaching careers are different and um i think it's important to open up the conversation share information i've been to this great course it was so interesting would you like to hear more about it here's the web link you know sharing things with people i think is is really helpful something else that i think is also helpful is uh, there's a now and again, I've noticed this over the years I've been doing the research, is there is a lot more research has gone on uh, around the various aspects of dance and wellness. So there's a lot more about you know, body image and self-esteem and, and um, not overloading students, making sure that the workload is balanced, you know, that idea of, of um, overtraining. Also lots more about cross-training, about um, adolescent growth and development, there's a lot more information available because of all the research that's been done. And I think now the challenge is to get that information perhaps um, reduced down into layman's terms that people who are not physiotherapists and not qualified health professionals and have not done uh, high level academic degrees because they've been busy dancing and teaching at the coalface to 
to put it into language that, that they are comfortable in reading. Um, not to dumb it, not, I don't mean dumb it down, I just mean make it clear and succinct. Because let's face it, dance, dance professionals of all sorts are very, very busy people. And they don't have time to wade through a whole lot of information to get to the, the crux of it. And I think that's perhaps the challenge now is to try and find, okay, how can we disseminate all this marvelous research that's gone on? How can we disseminate that in a usable and easy to digest form that is actually helpful to teachers and that they can then share with their students? Uh, so sort of, uh, we need a sort of a middleman, middle someone who will do that. And I know there's a couple of uh, organizations that are trying to do that. There's a few Facebook groups and pages that have been set up where people are trying to do that, to take the detailed research articles uh, and reports and pull out the main points and pass them on uh, in usable form. And I think that would be really, really helpful to capture a wider range of, of teachers without being sort of threatening or critical in any way. I don't think that's the least bit helpful. It's it's more about encouraging and inspiring people to, to find out that information and uh, seek it out themselves, yeah. And did you ask your participants about their preferred way to receive information? So what where they already go for information? Well, we did talk a bit about a bit about that, um, and that would have been had I been able to continue with another project that I had in mind. This would be the next stage: is what is the best way for that? It did. Most people felt that that combination of some face to face and some online is the way to go, simply because of their time. They're very very short on time, the cost involved, and so on. And they, while they really like the face to face, because obviously that is the way that you can gain the most from all your senses, as it were, feeling it, doing it, seeing it, touching it. Um, they were quite conscious that logically online is going to be the easier way for them to absorb that kind of information because it will be quicker, it will be readily accessible, it will be repeatable, and also they could afford it. So I think that's possibly the way forward. And I've noticed now that um, several of the dance organizations are offering CPD courses for, you know, for, for teachers that are not just about that organization's work. It's about these dancer wellness um, issues. And there's the Safe in Dance International organization that run the Healthy Dance Practice Certificate for dance teachers and other qualifications for students. And uh, that's really readily accessible and easy to access and so on. So I think those sorts of, and that's a combination of uh, online learning and then actually you, I think you video yourself teaching and send that in so that you're demonstrating the skills that you've learned on the program. So I think those sorts of areas are going to be helpful in the future. I suppose if there are health professionals listening, to be thinking about ways that the resources you provide online might um, might come across to dance teachers. So whether it's in language that they can access and understand and whether it's in a place that's easy to find and making the key points stand out, I guess, um, rather than being buried. Going back, you, you were talking to um, about studio dancers and their the difficulty that they have with scheduling. And I think 
this is something that I definitely notice that there comes a point in a dancer's progression through into full time where and it's probably for one or two years you know they're not quite ready to make that step into a vocational school um, but they're still training quite hard and that's definitely the goal it gets really difficult balancing because school obviously comes first in the day academic school and then dance has to come later um, so balancing the classwork and as you said having enough sleep and you know eating well and things like that and these seem to be the environments that you at the moment have a lot of experience in so what were some of the strategies that studio teachers did employ um, that you could see were working really well or that the teachers felt were working really really well um, in this scenario because i think this is this is one of the challenging the cha- this is the challenging group those two years right before you go full-time. Yes, I think teachers were had a number of different ways. Some of them were doing things like scheduling because often the older girls' classes are very late at night. So it means they've been at school since early at the morning and they're still dancing at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. So I think some of the schools were trying to change that around by having the uh, the senior girl class, senior students classes, I'm not saying just girls and of course boys as well, um, the senior students classes more earlier in the evening, like directly after school. So students could come from school, do their dance classes and get home at a reasonable hour to have a meal and go to have their homework and go to bed. So that was one strategy some, some teachers were using. Others were doing things like providing a study area at the studio if they had the space, there'd be a study room or a desk somewhere that students could go and get some homework done if they had a lag between arriving at the studio from school and when their class started, they could actually get some homework done so that by the time they got home, if it, even if it was a little later in the evening, that was done for the day and they could relax. So there were those sorts of things that people were doing. Several of the schools were running transition programs whereby this, they had a relationship with a a local high school and they were doing uh, like a day a week or a half two half days a week where the students would have missing maybe sport or other elective subjects that they didn't have to do that they could come and do dance instead Uh, and up their their training to some degree without uh, going full-time so lots of those transitional and various sorts of those sorts of transition programs some were running those like on a Saturday afternoon or something and not impinging on school at all and some were actually having an arrangement with local high schools that they would be able to get a release for those students for certain amounts of time and uh, something else that seems to be sort of developing as well is this thought of, okay, I want to do some wellness work within my studio, how the challenge being, how can I fit that in with an already heavy schedule, you know, students who may be already quite overloaded and overscheduled, they're doing a lot of things, and even younger children who are doing dance and cricket and soccer and blah, 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 you know, how do we fit in wellness uh, elements among that? And things that I've sort of gleaned from it is that what we need, I think, is to develop a flexible kind of approach. So there may be an opportunity for teachers to uh, develop like little wellness windows, I call them, like a little wellness window where maybe at the end of a class, once or, you know, once a week, once a fortnight or whatever, you take 10 minutes and you do a small snippet about something to do with wellness. And then perhaps there might be 
wellness workshops where you might bring in uh, health professionals or maybe your own staff might be suitably uh, experienced and qualified or could become so with some CPD to deliver short workshops that might again run on a Saturday afternoon or the occasional Sunday or maybe in the school holidays, that sort of thing where you can do a little bit more of a block. And then perhaps um, the situation where eventually there might be a regular weekly schedule of wellness classes that cover a number of different aspects of wellness that are scheduled into the schedule, maybe sandwiched between you know, classes so that students can do their class either side and do the wellness bit in the middle, which could perhaps provide some rest break and so on in their day if they're if it's a busy schedule. So I think now is the way to what I'm looking at now for my next sort of foray into um, working further ideas is how can teachers implement this and what can they do, what is viable. And I think it needs to be a flexible kind of smorgasbord of options uh, and I'm very keen to work with some health professionals now on coming up with these little snippets of information that teachers could share safely because that's something that teachers were very conscious of was I you know I obviously I am not a trained physiotherapist or a psychologist or a dietitian I don't want to be delivering information that may not be accurate you know I want to make sure that what's being delivered is correct from uh, properly trained people. So teachers were very conscious of not stepping outside their area of expertise. So I think it's finding this balance between, yes, use the readily available information that's been checked by a health professional that you can squeeze into your classes and do the occasional workshop safely. And then have perhaps broader a broader program that you can develop involving a health professional to deliver the material. And I think it's that kind of like a sliding scale. Teachers start with the little bits to get the introductions going to each topic. And then you go into the bringing in the health professionals when it needs to be more detailed. And that really is best done by someone with the full background. Yeah, I mean, I think from a health professional's perspective too, to know that the, the dance teachers that you're working with, so the students of the dance teachers that you're working with, are all on the same page as you is also really helpful um, so that you know that you're not saying one thing but they're sort of hearing something else from the teacher as well. Um, I, I am always very conscious of that. So, and you know, it's hard I think as a private practitioner to communicate with a teacher directly about a student's well-being without appropriate consent and quite often there's not a lot of time but and, and students listen to their teachers, you know, um, students develop really great working relationships with their teachers and any kind of really positive health messaging that teachers can deliver is going to make health promotion and, you know, prevention of injuries and burnout and all sorts of things um, it's so much more widespread. Like that blanket approach is always going to be more effective than trying to fix things once they're broken. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. I think this comes back to the success that was noted by the teachers who already had established working relationships with various health professionals uh, from the point of view of you know the health professionals coming in and delivering material, but also then monitoring what the teacher was going to deliver. 
So if you've, if you've got a relationship with someone, you might say, look, I want to do this 10 minutes at the end of class thing. These are the things I'm thinking of talking about. This is what I'm thinking of, of using, which might be some published material or something that the teacher decides to use. And having that checked by someone who is a professional and expert in that field, just to make sure that, yes, that is current, that's up to date, that's an appropriate introduction that you as a, as a teacher could provide safely. And then I'll follow up on that and develop from that when I come to deliver my sessions. And I think that's that's a perhaps the next step now is developing relationships between all the necessary people involved, the teachers and the health professionals, to for the benefit of the students. The other thing that came up, which was an interesting point, was uh, that some of the parents of students were very supportive. You know, if the teacher ran a, um, a workshop about, uh, you know, the value of um, rest and recovery or about um, value of, uh, you know, conditioning work and that sort of thing, uh, even on the psychological side of it, uh, in terms of performance psychology and things, there was quite a lot of support. Some parents were not so supportive, especially about anything to do with nutrition. And some parents seemed to feel that it was a little bit of a criticism of them that if we're running a nutrition session, does that mean you think I don't know how to look after my child and, and feed my child? And even some parents um, expressed the concern that if you talk to my child about nutrition, it's going to make them think about nutrition more than they should be. And they're going to gradually develop an eating disorder. So it, a little bit of that kind of resistance, I think it's perhaps we need to also be educating parents on the value and safety of dance or wellness tuition about things, because otherwise they sort of get a little bit scared that, oh, I don't know about that. and I'm not comfortable with my child being exposed to that. They don't know enough about it. So I think that sharing of information with parents um, and explaining the value and why it's important to talk about these things and it's not going to cause them to have an eating disorder. In fact, it'd probably be the exact opposite. I did do a course recently from uh, with the Butterfly Foundation, who are an organization who specialize in disordered eating or eating disorders. And it was really great. And it was from the point of view of, of teachers and what you should and shouldn't say and that sort of thing. And I found it was really, really interesting and uh, very much supported everything that I've believed in, but it gave me a, a, a formal framework around um, language and so on, which was which was helpful. So again, I think it's perhaps uh, just making parents aware because they don't know about dance. That's why they send the child to you because you do know about dance, but just sharing that awareness of the value of dance or wellness for holistic health. And of course, this you know, the dance or wellness spreads across so much more than just dance, as you say. I mean, it's um, it can spill over so much into people's everyday lives and their normal health and well-being aspects, uh, especially from the growth and development side of things. I've been talking to Dr. Siobhan Mitchell recently. She's a UK-based researcher who's focused on adolescent growth and development in her research. And uh, yeah, so much as what she was saying is it's just the awareness and letting students be aware of the changes they're likely to experience so that they're not upset or frightened or worried when these things happen. You know, somebody who's um, always been very strong and very flexible and suddenly isn't for a while. 
um, that they don't get upset that this is the end of the world. I'll never get my flexibility back and everything's gone wrong. And they understand that it's a natural progression and there are things we can do to keep you safe during this period. And yeah, so I think a lot of it's that sharing of the information, uh, educating both the teachers, the parents, the students, and that connection with the health professionals. I think these are the avenues that we need to explore now going forward. For the longest time, it feels as though dance, uh, an elite dance trails a little bit behind um, sport in terms Mm. of if you were part of a state swimming squad or even a school rowing team, um, parents are all involved in coming and cooking nutritious breakfasts after training sessions and you know of course you know there's a gym and they do rowing on the water but there's also a gym that they'll do land-based training in and all of that's very accepted and I think because it's a sport there's maybe less resistance in terms of parents accepting that performance in you know nutrition and and conditioning and rest from a performance perspective in that realm Whereas because dance is an art form and perhaps when parents are enrolling their children in a ballet class, they expect that they're learning about an art form rather than being an elite athlete or becoming an elite performer. And maybe when it does switch to that, there's a little bit of, oh, oh, I didn't realize that this was that this was part of part of becoming an elite dancer. Um, so I think a little bit of the way that we talk about dance or that dance is framed and viewed probably um, maybe some of that is is driving a little bit of resistance it's funny that some parents were very happy to bring their their children to a physio to help with an ankle injury for example but as soon as I suggest that maybe they would benefit from psychology as well you know sometimes there's a little bit of resistance there too so it's interesting yes. that you noted this that similar things were happening um, for dance mm. teachers Mm. And I think there's another aspect too in that um, the thought that, well, I just want my child to go to class and just have fun and enjoy it. Um, and I don't, they've got no aspirations to, to move into the professional training area at all. But surely we want anybody who's participating for recreation to be just as safe as anybody else. So, and the other thing, although I had to focus my research on this, the 12 to 17 year group, um, several of the teachers I spoke to um, mentioned how that important they thought it was for younger children too. And, uh, you know, right from maybe around the age of eight, start to introduce safety and wellness elements in very simple, engaging, you know, age-appropriate ways so that by the time they get to the teenage years where these changes and so on and probably a few more challenges might happen, Um, They're used to all this wellness stuff, and it's just a continuation of that and not something new that they're suddenly experiencing. They've always had little wellness windows here and there about how to look after yourself and make sure that you've got proper food for your day. If you're coming to ballet all day on a Saturday for, you know, your class and then your concert rehearsal or your Eisteddford group rehearsal, that you've got your proper food and everything and you remember to cool down at the end of the day. And You know, they're perhaps used to all these things at a young age so that by the time they reach any challenges, A, they're comfortable in talking about it with somebody. They've perhaps had some connections with health professionals of various sorts. So they're not 
worried about communicating with a, a, a physio or a psychologist or a dietitian or anybody like that because they've had a little bit of connection with some workshops here and there or something. And I thought well, that's a really valid, valid point as well, that, that, that all those safety and wellness issues are you know, instilled in age-appropriate ways from a young age. Maybe we need a, um, a healthy Harold van for ballet schools. Maybe I don't know if we do. Listening to this remembers healthy Harold, um, yeah. but in primary schools in Australia, at least where I grew up, probably once a year, this um, caravan would rock up with a puppet giraffe and they'd provide all sorts of information just about where, you know, when you eat food, where does it go? And making sure you're getting variety in your diet. And they had lots of fun songs. Like I could definitely see some kind of version of Healthy Harold for ballet schools. <laughs> Sounds like you a brilliant it. idea. There you I go, there's you. your next research project. <laughs> <laughs> so Julia, if you could go back in time 10 years, um, what are some things that you would, that you now know about, about dance and wellbeing that you, that you wish you had known and what would you have implemented 10 years ago if you could have? Yes. Okay. So yeah, 10 years ago, I certainly didn't know as much as I know now because I've done more study and, and research and things. I think I already knew the topics. I was quite, have been for quite some time interested in the various topics. So, you know, the other question that came out about the screening, is that a valuable thing? to be to be happening so that and often it happens at the pre-point level doesn't it at the moment um, but does it happen the same for boys and is that how can we frame that to be appealing to students without making them feel like it's an assessment or that their body is being judged and all of that and I think perhaps 10 years ago it was very much an assessment and you're being judged whether you're good enough or not that was what the connotation of screening was. And now I think there's more discussion around the language around that, that it's, I think it, this was something that somebody came up with, was it, we're trying to give them a, a toolkit around looking after themselves, a wellness toolkit. And how can we word it and, uh, and uh, put that out there as a helpful thing to do and not something that's any kind of negativity around it. Uh, so the other sort of topics that I looked at, um, you know, there's a lot more that's happening in terms of knowledge about strength and flexibility training, and that it's not all about stretching yourself within an inch of your life. Um, and uh, that's all changed a lot in the last 10 years and developed and developed a lot. And the same with um, you know, the body image issues and so on, and the language that we use in teaching, much more aware now of being really careful about language that we use to make sure that we're not inadvertently making people feel uncomfortable. Um, so I think I knew I knew about all the topics that I've researched. I knew of their existence and I was starting to find out more about them, but I wish I'd been able to access, I wish there'd been all the research that's happened in probably the last five years, which has been a real explosion of, of research. I wish that had been available at an earlier time because I would have definitely been interested in learning about it earlier than I ended up learning about it. So, yeah, I think more detail about the things I already had an inkling about would have been really great. Even as I recall, the things that I talked about when I was participating in your research, the way that we 
well, that I approach my practice now is is different to the way that it was three years ago um, because there's more information available. I've made other professional connections. Um, I've done research of my own. Like there, and there are all, all these experiences and you don't realise until you pause and reflect and think, oh, how would I have approached that, that sort of clinical issue, I guess, five years ago or how would I have approached that situation? And it's, it's kind of, it's nice to, to look back and reflect on how much, or on, on how far you've come, but then you sort of go, oh, all those students, they, they missed out on that, you know? Yes. <laughs> Well, you can look back and think, oh, if I'd known that then, I could have helped that person so much more. I mean, hopefully I gave them some help, but now what I know, I could have been so much more of assistance to them. So, you know, that's the way it is about learning. But that's the fascinating thing also is that the more you learn, the more you the more you know, the more you find out what you don't know. <laughs> and it becomes a little bit of a, sort of almost an addiction I want to know more I want to know more what can I find out more how can I educate myself more in order to help other people more and it's it becomes something that is an ongoing process you know never stop learning do we it's a bit of an addiction I think yes (laughs) (laughs) oh dear there are worse things um last question Julia I ask every guest on the pre-point pod what are your preferred pair of point shoes well it's been quite a long time since i is this for me personally what i myself as a as a dancer yes okay so it's been a preference oh it's been a very long time since i had a pair of point shoes on louise (laughs) but i always used to wear freeds when i was dancing in london and brought a a very big box of freeds with me when i moved to new zealand and uh did actually use up the whole box over the course of the time that I was dancing. Um, so, yeah, Freed's were my choice because of the mobility and of the um, articulation through the foot, which I always really found helpful. So, yeah. They would have survived okay in New Zealand too, I'm guessing, because the climate would have been similar to the UK. Yes, yes, they didn't disintegrate too badly. But it, when I first moved there, which was in the 70s, um, it was very difficult for people to get decent point shoes, very difficult, because they tended to just get a centre, you know, the, the dance shops would just be sent a bunch of point shoes and you'd go and get try and get a child fitted for a pair of point shoes and it was really just taking the best you could get of what was there because there wasn't much. And I think, you know, dance teachers and, and dance shops found it very difficult to get the import licences and all the rest of it to be able to bring in um, good point shoes so that's definitely just improved out of sight since then so which one would expect over an extremely long time <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's actually amazing to to think back again to think back and realize how far how far we've come and also really inspiring to think about the places that we can go um, with with dance and well-being um, it's it's actually very exciting. This has been a, a wonderfully inspiring podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Julia. It's an absolute pleasure, and I really commend you for for doing these podcasts, which is going to contribute hugely to the range of information that people can access and the ease of access. So, well done, thank you, Louise, for for doing this. I think you'll be a huge asset to a, a large number of people. So, thank uh, you very yeah, much. <laughs> Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.